Alaskans are keenly aware of our extreme distance from the vast majority of the stuff we need. Everything from nails to canned peas gets barged or flown to our state, and throughout the pandemic, supply line holdups and labor shortages have meant empty shelves for some household items, food, and other supplies. What kind of delays might be on the horizon as we move toward holiday shopping time, and how much more will those goods cost? We'll discuss constraints in the supply line today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Remember last fall when people were hoarding toilet paper, paper towels, and some basic food staples? I'm still working through a couple of cases of canned vegetables myself. It was hard to know how severe the shortages would be when the pandemic was first raging across the planet. We made it through those earlier supply restrictions. But as the virus surged again and again, the supply chain issue multiplied. So what's the outlook for this winter? What will be some of the most challenging supplies to access and why? And how much will prices rise for those gifts you may want to send during the holidays? Here to help us better understand what's happening with source materials and labor is Darren Prokop. Darren is a professor of logistics at UAA. Also with us is Alyssa Rodriguez. Alyssa is the state director for the Alaska Manufacturing Extension Partnership. And Ralph Townsend, no relation, is a professor of economics at UAA's Institute of Social and Economic Research, or ICER. Welcome to all of you. Nice to be with you, Lori. All right. Thanks. Thanks, all three of you, for being here. You can also join our conversation, Alaskans. Are you waiting for building materials or a food order? Do you live in a rural area and are concerned about empty store shelves in the coming winter? Do you run a business and, and you're waiting on backordered supplies? Have you seen price spikes in your community? Give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's one 800 Four seven eight eight two five five. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is five five zero eight four two two five five zero eight four two two. You can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org. So I, uh, Professor Prokop, Darren, um, I should have asked you before if you wanted to be referred to as Professor or Darren. But could Please you call me Darren? Oh, all right, great, thank you. Could you set the scene for us? What are the main issues that are causing supply problems at this point in the pandemic? Yes, and this was not unexpected. And uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me, and it's great to be with you and uh, my UAA colleagues as well. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about this issue, but I, I also have to apologize. And the reason I say that is because uh, what I do and the industry I represent, logistics and supply chain management, it works well when, for everybody else who don't, who don't practice this as a business, it's when it's invisible. In other words, we would like to call ourselves an invisible industry. It's similar to you turn on the tap 
of your water faucet, you flip on the light switch, and you just want the power and you want the water, and you don't give much thought to how it gets there. There's a whole set of um, linkages that make that happen, and we don't think about them until things break down. That's exactly what's going on here. Um, basically, in a nutshell, supply chain management and the logistics that helps the flow along the supply chain, it's basically both a blessing and a curse at the same time. The blessings have come because we have grown used to our globalized markets, access to information on the Internet, and very price-competitive international transportation has made it very easy to become an importer and an exporter. That's the blessing. The curse comes because these long multi-country linkages are fragile and they are prone to strain and fraying when demand and supply pressure builds and COVID-19 has simply exacerbated that. So all of the um, fragility in the supply chain is basically brought to the fore and that's what we're seeing very, very simply. That's what we're facing right now. So President Biden announced uh, a plan to use the National Guard to help out with bottlenecks at the West Coast ports. But, Darren, you've said that really won't help. Why not? Well, because we have to uh, make a distinction between what we call normal market activity and emergency management. Bringing out the National Guard, helpful, uh, but most appropriate if it were a national emergency. These are still market activities that are going on. We have prices, we have costs, we have demand, and we have supply. So um, because of the surge in demand coupled with uh, the shortage of capacity and bottlenecks, we are seeing prices go up, we're seeing delays, and we are seeing the uh, ripple effects along the supply chain of suppliers ordering more than they usually would to stave off shortages, people doing the Christmas shopping earlier in order to, again, stave off the potential of not having the Christmas gifts on time. So the National Guard is fine uh, to bring in a little bit of labor here and there, but uh, we're talking about millions of containers. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of conveyances and workers, and the National Guard is not going to make that move any faster. All right. Uh, Ralph, I want to move to you now. The pandemic, as you noted, has been ongoing for 18 months, and the economy has changed in that time. You said the supply problems are symptoms of that change, that the economy can't keep up with how it's changed. Describe what's going on there for us. Well, um, first of all, uh, I, I think Darren has been a little hard on the supply chain, actually, in describing it as fragile, because I think it's important to remember that the supply chain is making decisions months ahead of time. Things are being manufactured months ahead of time in Asia, put on ships and shipped to the U.S., those decisions months ahead of time assume that the manufacturers and the shippers know what people want. And a big problem with the pandemic is that people have changed what they've wanted in, in ways that the supply chain could not predict. It, the supply chain is very much about using information from the past to figure out, oh, at Christmas we need to deliver these products to the U.S. Well, the, the pandemic has really disrupted that in, in a number of different ways. The first one is, of course, we changed what we wanted during the pandemic. You used the example of toilet paper. We suddenly were using more of the kinds of toilet paper that we needed at home and less of the toilet paper that we needed at our offices. A small change, but one that it took a while for the system to adjust to. 
we were all staying home. So we were using more things, uh, more goods, the kinds of things that come on container ships, and less of services like haircuts and uh, restaurant services. The second thing that probably many of us forget is that actually we have more income during the pandemic. That seems a little uh, counterintuitive, but although there were certainly people who were uh, adversely impacted by the pandemic, the government stepped in and poured more money into the economy than uh, was actually taken out by the pandemic. So many of us got stimulus checks from the federal government. State and local governments and nonprofits got stimulus checks. So there was a big increase in the demand for goods because there was more income. Hmm. Uh, that, of course, then got laid up on top of well, the pandemic itself meant that some workers were um, uh, not at the workplace, whether that workplace was manufacturing in the U.S. or overseas, or if that workplace was um, uh, in, in the shipping area. So all of these things, this change in behavior because of the pandemic was something that the entire supply chain had to respond to and could not have been expected to have perfect foresight months in advance for what we wanted. Absolutely. And on top of that, uh, manufacturing and retailers have gone to uh, the concept of the just-in-time method of making things a few decades ago, meaning that they build to order rather than build and warehouse a bunch of stock that's expensive to keep inventory on hand. Clearly, that's affecting supplies. Talk about that transition, and do you think manufacturers will change going forward and how they consider that? You know, I, I think uh, your point on just-in-time is absolutely important to re remember because it means there aren't warehouses, large warehouses of goods and services there to take up the slack. I think you hear manufacturing, and I'd be interesting to hear Alyssa's point of view on this, but I think what you're hearing from manufacturing is we need to, divert, where possible, we need to diversify our supply chain so that we are getting things from more than one place perhaps bringing some of the manufacturing, for example, back to manufacturers that are closer uh, to uh, where my manufacturing is in the U.S. So mm. I think manufacturers will be saying, how do I diversify? Certainly, as, as Darren pointed out, there will be a tendency to, well, I should build up my inventories in the short run. I'm a little doubtful that the long run is we're going to go back to 1950s-style warehouses. Sure. Uh, well, uh, Alyssa, let's uh, turn to you now. I want to know more about the Manufacturing Extension Partnership. But first, in terms of the just-in-time model, are you hearing that manufacturers here will take a different approach in the future? Is there sort of like a sweet spot between not having too much money tied up in inventory but having enough on hand that you can make it through at least some supply chain disruptions? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the manufacturers in Alaska have, have been walking that kind of nice edge between holding enough stock on hand uh, without without having too much money tied up in it, just because we, uh, as, as Alaskans, have more shocks to our supply chain than a lot of places in the lower 48. 
Um, so this this is relatively common. But I've, as Ralph mentioned, the challenges in terms of just warehousing the materials that you're going to need has been a real challenge. And so I think we are seeing more manufacturers who, who want to keep that stock on hand, but we're also hearing that they don't have anywhere to put it. And so they're looking for larger facilities in some cases um, so that they can accommodate having more stock on hand, um, but then trying to partner with other manufacturers and potentially hold some of their uh, stock as well because they, they can't afford these larger places. And so it, it's a very delicate balance between, um, you know, kind of hoarding as, as the rest of us were hoarding toilet paper and things, um, you know, in terms of their critical inputs to their products. Um, but also being able to have enough cash on hand to to do business as as usual and not have it all tied up in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're talking about supply line constraints and what the outlook may be for winter and the holiday shopping season. My guests today are Darren Prokop. He is a professor of logistics at the University of Alaska Anchorage, UAA. Alyssa Rodriguez is the state director for the Alaska Manufacturing Extension Partnership, also housed at UAA's Business Enterprise Institute. And Ralph Townsend, no relation to me, is a professor of economics at ICER, also at UAA. You can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255 if you're seeing supply line problems or you're concerned about what may be coming this winter or you're seeing prices rise in your community, 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Alyssa, you work specifically with manufacturers and your organization is new. It started in 2019. Talk a little bit about what prompted it to start up, and and then how is manufacturing growing here? Historically, Alaska has not had much in that area of business, but I did see on your website that there are 586 manufacturers in Alaska. Yeah, thank you, Lori. So we are a relatively new organization, as you mentioned, uh, but we are part of a national network. There is an, there's an MEP in all of the 50 states, plus one in Puerto Rico. Um, and so there was a there was a push uh, from the we're partially a federal program. There was a push to uh, have a program in Alaska as well, and and there was a definite need. The Business Enterprise Institute at UAA recognized this this need to have um, a, a home for assistance for manufacturers located in Alaska. Um, and while you you know we have less than uh, 600 manufacturers in the state. And it's been relatively flat. Um, if you look at a long-term trend going back about you know 10 years or a little more, our, our manufacturing has been relatively flat, uh, especially when we kind of look at manufacturing outside of seafood processing. Seafood processing tends to have its own um, you know variation from year to year in terms of employment. Uh, but part of the reason I, I would maybe suggest for the, the lack of overall growth in manufacturing, besides the fact that it's simply challenging to, to manufacture in Alaska, is that we haven't had an organization consistently um, that is that has existed to help manufacturers uh, in this way, whereas other states have have had MEPs for you know 20, 30 years. So their manufacturers have you know, been born as a startup and existed for 20 and 30 years, having an organization that's there to help them you know in, improve their processes, reduce their costs, increase sales, all of those sorts of things. 
Um, and, and Alaska manufacturers have kind of maybe had them on and off, but most manufacturers haven't. And they haven't worked with an MEP or had someone specifically uh, available to help them to help them with manufacturing needs. Describe some of the products. You mentioned seafood. That's a well-known product in Alaska that gets produced here. But describe some of the other products being made by these Alaska manufacturers. Absolutely. So we actually have a a really wonderful variation in the products that are manufactured. We manufacture a lot of uh, specialty clothing items in Alaska, so outdoor gear, Horse skirts, which are kind of an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of food manufacturing, beverages, so any any beer that's manufactured, spirits, uh, all those things count as manufacturing. Our, our bakeries that we love are all manufacturing. Metal fabrication, you know, if we think about um, the oil and gas industry, there's a lot of manufacturing um, that, that is associated with oil and gas in terms of metal fabrication and, and those types of manufacturers. Um, trying to think of others that that we've got um, but a lot of industrial manufacturing that's happening wire rope manufacturing um, very specialty products air, uh, aerospace manufacturing as well uh, everything from you know rocket ship parts to um, to skis for airplanes so there's a, a wonderful variation in the types of products that we manufacture locally Fantastic. Thank you for uh, giving us a bit of a rundown there of some of the wide variety. It seems like that's so crucial to further stabilizing our economy in the future and uh, having more job uh, creation in within our state by Alaskans. Darren, the public perception that a lot of the problem is simply labor and that people don't want to work. I want to talk about resignations and be in boomer retirements in a bit, but what would you say in response to the notion that there's just a lot of people who don't want to work and that's why things aren't moving along? Well, that, that, that's part of it. Um, and one thing to keep in mind, uh, we read a lot about the uh, congestion problem focused at the uh, port of L.A. and Long Beach, which is uh, the, the biggest uh, uh, port of entry in the, in the West Coast. And um, the thing to keep in mind is most of that cargo that is uh, either offshore or on the dock and just waiting to be moved, most of that cargo goes inland, and there's also problems there too. That's um, Given that these containers are headed inland, it's the shortages of warehouse workers due to the perception that they have of low pay and tough working conditions means that what we call in our industry the near last mile and last mile deliveries uh, in the Midwest and the East Coast as well as the West Coast are being uh, delayed. And so the result of this is that many shippers, those who are having items brought into the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, they have they feel they have no choice but to leave those containers sitting um, in the dock staging areas usually about five to ten days longer than usual, and they pay what are known as demurrage fees, sort of like rent to the port to hang on to those containers. They would um, rather do that than have the items come to their already filled uh, warehouses. And uh, because of that, uh, and again, as I mentioned before, there is the potential in the short run of ordering buffer stock to hedge against these future delays, which just adds to the problem. It's basically what we call uh, the bullwhip effect of lack of coordination among shippers and carriers and buyers and sellers. 
The bottom line right now is I was checking the data nationally. Um, uh, the warehouse vacancy rate um, um, for um, cargo, et cetera, et cetera, is about 4%. That's really, really low right now, and the rents are up 8% year over year. So this is a very, very tough market in the short run uh, to work through. One thing I'd like to say, though, is from a labor perspective, uh, to uh, pick, on some, pick up some of the things that Elisa was saying, Alaska positively has a great potential for manufacturing with the logistics and supply chain management potential we have, and that is because you put two pieces together. We have our Ted Stevens Anchorage International Airport, which has some of the most, which actually has the most liberal air cargo transfer operations allowed anywhere in the country, combined with the fact that we have foreign trade zone status. So that means when items are brought in from Asia, there's a lot of potential for value-added manufacturing and then global connectivity using the air cargo carriers to the lower 48 and beyond into South America, uh, Mexico and South America as well. So there is a great potential uh, that Anchorage has to be a manufacturing node if the logistics is leveraged uh, properly. I just wanted to throw that in there. Hmm. Really interesting. Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska. We're talking about concerns over supply line constraints and what might be coming this winter for us. Uh, If you've observed empty shelves in your community or you're concerned about holiday shopping or you've seen price spikes, give us a call statewide 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Ralph, you talked about this uh, a bit ago. Um, businesses need to understand what their customers want so they can keep those goods on hand. And when people started buying very different products out of their normal habits, a sudden spike in home improvement supplies, workout gear, new home office stuff. When this happens, it really must be tough for businesses and their suppliers because, as you said, they're basing their purchases on history. And people have had to adjust and compromise. They may want one brand of something, but it's not available, so they substitute. How do you see this affecting purchasing going forward when it's kind of throwing out the window this idea of basing your purchases on historical patterns of buying? And when they get the the A-list thing in, if people have begun buying off the B-list, maybe they've decided they like B-list now. And so how how long will it take for this to all shake out? And, and um, it seems like it could really add expense for businesses. You know, I, I, I think the bottom line, Lori, is that uh, as long as the pandemic is here and causing uncertainty, we're going to have these sorts of adjustment effects. I mean, think, for example, if you were a business operating last January or February, predicting for the fall, probably you wouldn't have built your projections on the assumption that there'd be another spike in the pandemic, which would uh, cause the disruptions to continue. You would have thought, oh, vaccines are coming. People will move back towards their more traditional historical patterns. Of course, we know that didn't happen because of uh, that uh, pandemic uh, change. And I think it's a really good question. Obviously, we're asking ourselves, have people really changed what they're doing, or is it entirely a reaction uh, to the pandemic? And we're asking ourselves that both on the consumer side uh, and on the side of being employees. Um, have people really started 
uh, you know, in the last 18 months, many of us shifted towards doing more things outdoors and doing fewer things, going to the movies and so forth. There was a big demand for things like bikes and canoes and kayaks and that sort of thing. Uh, if you're an, if you're a bike uh, retailer, should you predict that people are likely to uh, increase their demand for bikes again next year? Or should you be worried, actually, that when the pandemic is over, uh, there'll be a lot of used bikes for sale and your <laughs> new bikes will now be competing with very cheap uh, used bikes? I, don't th I think the simple answer is until we get by the pandemic, probably there's going to be this kind of uncertainty to deal with. It's going to be rough for a while uh, in uh, in either direction, it seems like, for businesses to try to know what their future forecast should look like. Uh, Alisa, clearly you had no idea of what was coming, but even though the Manufacturing Extension Partnership is fairly new, how have you been able to help businesses during the pandemic? When you're a small business and you've got supplies that you paid for stuck in a port somewhere, what are your options? How are Alaska manufacturers surviving these constraints? Yeah, that's a so. I mean, we've really tried to help people manage um, de-risking their supply chain, um, and and trying to help them in some cases connect with financing if they have you know a ton of money held up in in um, their critical inputs that are stuck in a, a port and are trying to shift to a different supplier as kind of a backstop. In many cases, they need financing in order to make that happen. Uh, but another really critical part of being uh, part of this national network that I mentioned before is a supplier scouting network. And so that was really developed as as um, part of the shortage in PPE that we had across the, the nation and across the globe. And so that's kind of how it started and it's expanded since then. Um, and so when we have a supplier, sorry, when we have a, a manufacturer come to us and say that they are short on a particular supply or even just that they're looking for a new supplier, uh, we're able to take down all the information that they, that their specifics about that input. And then we bring it to the national network through the supplier scouting network and, uh, and see if we can find them a U.S.-based manufacturer for that particular input that they need. Um, and that, that's been really successful. It's been very, very successful for PPE because um, there was a big surge in, in folks who were manufacturing it. And so we decided to expand that to any, any inputs that a manufacturer might have. And we do the same thing locally in-state. And so we go in-state first. We see if we can find anyone through our uh, contacts with manufacturers. And if we can't, then we go to the to this national supplier scouting network. So that's probably been the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that we've done to try to help people manage shortages in their supply chains. And, and when someone does have uh, a bunch of money invested in a, uh, some stock that they purchase from somewhere and it's stuck in L.A. or who knows where in a port. What what can they do? Um, a lot of small businesses, of course, don't have a ton of cash on hand, and, and so having that money tied up like that could make or break a business potentially. What are their financial options in these scenarios? That's, it's not it's not easy. Uh, in many cases, it's a matter of trying to, um, you know, make your case to to one of your local banks and and try to communicate what's happening. That this is, you know, this is really kind of a hopefully a one time situation, um, and that you you will be able to make up for it. Uh, a lot of the, unfortunately, for a lot of the manufacturers, we're seeing that the loans that were coming out, the you know 
PPP, EIDL, all those sorts of things. And then the, the next iteration of loans that came out, um, they were just too late. Um, it, you know, people started to experience these issues specifically around their supply chains after the money had already been uh, been allocated. And so that has been the timing has just really been unfortunate in that case that as people are coming to us, it's just it's just too late for them to uh, to put in an, an application and say, hey, I was actually impacted by COVID in a way that I hadn't expected, and this is it. And so right now we're seeing that their primary source um, is kind of regular commercial financing. Mm, okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, let's go to the phones for a moment. Greg is in Anchorage. Hi, Greg. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Hi. So, um I have a unique perspective in that I'm a merchant mariner and I work out on the ships at sea in the winter that uh, bring the goods to Anchorage. And um, I think there are some things that have been overlooked um, in the conversation um, about the supply chain vulnerabilities and some things that maybe um, people people haven't thought of for, um, you know, as a way to to uh, utilize our supply chain, um, and I, I have some ideas. Um, uh, one is that uh, during COVID, one of the big vulnerabilities was the virus itself on the ships. Um, we're living in close quarters, and there are only 20 of us, and um, yet there, there was no vaccine provided for the crew members. Um, and if, if the vaccine had been provided, we would have been more secure in our supply chain. Um, that was um, something that I was pushing for when I was on board last winter, and I had friends up here who were getting the vaccine, but the crew members on board the ships, it wasn't made available to them. And uh, so anyway, that's concerning. Um, another vulnerability that um, is uh, the aging ships that I work on. Um, the ships were built in 1987, and they have um, tremendous amount of maintenance and um, fuel quality issues at times uh, that could really bring a halt to our supply chain. I think people need to understand that most 80% of or more of all the goods brought to Alaska are brought here by ship uh, through the port of Anchorage. Um, um, so, and then another thing that I would say that it's a potential would be to, if there's water shortages and drought all over the West, we could use our empty containers because almost all the ships send empty containers southbound. Those could be filled with fresh water to a certain extent in some kind of bladder to um, provide water to the supply chain where it's needed. And it would be a value-added thing, whereas right now we're hauling empty containers. Mm. Anyway, that's my comment. Thank you. Well, thank you, Greg. Uh, interesting line of work, certainly, and a lot of great comments. We'll get reaction to those after we take a quick break as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead, whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active. It's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services.
Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are discussing supply line concerns as we head into winter and the holiday shopping season. If you've seen empty shelves or seen price increases or you're waiting on an order, give us a call. This number statewide is 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. My guests today are Darren Prokop, a professor of logistics at UAA, Alyssa Rodriguez, who is the state director of the Alaska Manufacturing Extension Partnership at the UAA Business Enterprise Institute, and Ralph Townsend, professor of economics at ICER. So, uh, Darren, the comments that Greg made about the vulnerability of mariners and old vessels. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, a lot, a lot of thoughts. And uh, thanks uh, to caller Greg for those uh, questions. Uh, he's uh, he would fit in very nicely in some of my transportation classes. Uh, the vaccine that that uh, is certainly an issue. Um, those who want the vaccine, they should uh, have ready access to it by all means. This uh, was really an issue uh, that uh, started. Um, right when the pandemic hit in the uh, spring of uh, 2020 in the sense that when we didn't have a vaccine when vessels were uh, discharging crews in different parts of the world it was hard for them to travel back home because there were lockdowns from one country to another so people were stranded the vaccine ends that but naturally we want to make sure that people have shots in arms so they're not uh, sequestered for two weeks or things like that the issue of the age of the vessel, um, yes, that, that is a, uh, a, a problem uh, that uh, leads to maintenance costs, and it, it's due to the fact that a lot of vessels are run 20, 30, and 40 years. I should say, it's controversial, but I'll throw it out there for the um, viewers to understand, um, the uh, vessels that Greg is talking about, indeed the vessels that come to the port of uh, Alaska, uh, bringing our goods from the port of Tacoma, that's from Matson and from Tote uh, Maritime. These are uh, what we call U.S. flag vessels. They must be built in the United States. And as such, the production costs are higher, maintenance costs are higher, etc. The reason is that we're not allowed to use um, foreign-built vessels to fly the U.S. flag. It's, it's due to a regulation uh, called the Merchant Marine Act, otherwise called the Jones Act. So that means that domestic uh, shipping is automatically more expensive than otherwise. Now, some will defend it and say it's it's good for national security, uh, it's good for um, domestic employment and things like that. That is the uh, controversy. I throw that out there so the viewers can consider the uh, pros and cons of um, what we call the Jones Act. In terms of hauling water back, fresh water, uh, to meet um, uh, drought conditions in the um, lower 48, I'll couch it by saying uh, Greg is basically mentioning a problem that Alaska has, and it's called the backhaul problem. We um, have container ships coming up with all the goodies, all the consumer goods, but we don't have any consumer goods going back, which Mm -hmm. means you have what are known as empty backhauls. That makes transportation costs higher than otherwise. So it's a perennial problem. What is it that we can um, haul back? If there is a market for fresh water, be it in a bladder, as Greg suggested, then that's something that really should be looked at by Matson and Tote Maritime. 
but it is a challenge. Um, the other way to look at it is we, we have our crude oil sent from the port of Valdez down to refineries, and then we have to haul um, gasoline back up uh, in a different vessel. Again, the backhaul problem is just a perennial issue, and uh, for those of us who are interested in manufacturing, that is also something to consider as well. Uh, the ability to fill backhauls will keep costs uh, lower than they currently are. It's a puzzle. It's been a puzzle in Alaska for the last 50-plus years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't forget that Governor Wally Hickel had the idea of building a freshwater pipeline to the lower 48. Someday that, who knows, that idea may still come to pass. We had an email question from Patricia, who says, my question is, how has the demand for PPE and other medical supplies impacted the manufacturing and transport of other supplies? Have you seen where uh, the demand for uh, helping to keep medical staff safe with uh, all of the what they needed for protective equipment, did that prioritization uh, affect um, the making of other goods and slowed things down. Who wants to tackle that? I, I can hop in there. Sure. Yeah. So I, I'll just uh, quickly. It's still impacting things. It was a huge impact in the beginning uh, as manufacturers who made a, a wide variety of goods across the U.S. and in Alaska transitioned. Uh, to making PPE. And and many of them, I'll just throw this out there, many of them did it first. They didn't think about any liability to themselves. They just knew that they had the ability and they wanted to do good. Um, but we, we continue to see this. So when we go to the doctor's office and everyone there who, who comes into contact with us from a medical perspective has a face shield on, a plastic face shield, we, we are seeing shortages, uh, for example, in uh, motorcycle face shields and, and snow, you know, that, that kind of thing because all of the plastic for face shields is going, um, is going to medical staff. So we saw it in the beginning in a really big way where people completely stopped the production of their normal goods. And now we're seeing it um, as, we, as people transition back to making what they did prior to the pandemic, uh, those raw inputs are still being held up to make PPE in in a lot of cases. Interesting. I I didn't realize that that was one of the other uh, big factors that's happening there. Ralph, I want to get back to you in a second, but uh, at least a follow-up here. Uh, Retailers can add different products to cover up empty shelves, spots on shelves, and they can try different supplies from other uh, manufacturers. But an actual manufacturer who has only one of a handful of products they're making, can't pivot quickly like retailers can. How are they coping and making it through, or are they? That's a fantastic question. Uh, that's part of what we're helping people to try to navigate through is um, is finding additional suppliers and, and de-risking their supply chains in that way by, by making sure that as they go forward, um, not only do they find someone to kind of fill that hole, you know, we can use plastics, plastic as an example, find a different plastics manufacturer to try to utilize, um, but but split those orders in the future. So instead of relying solely on a single manu- uh, a single supplier to maybe split their order so that they have connections to two suppliers on a regular basis, uh, we are helping people when possible to, to find a substitute material. That can be a lot harder, though, because uh, depending on the type of manufacturing, um, your your 
material needs are, are very specific. And so you can't, for example, you can't substitute, uh, you know, plastic for aluminum, something as simple as that. Uh, one metal for another as you're making things. Those, this material, um, material science needs are very specific. So that has been a challenge. And often it's, it's trying to find a new supplier as, a, as opposed to trying to find a different material. Uh, with some food products, it, it's a little bit easier to find a substitute um, input. But similar challenges exist. You know, if you were to substitute one kind of milk for another, you might not get the same texture in your final product and mm. things like that that you that you had. And so that, it's a big challenge for people. Absolutely. Thank you. Ralph, is there in sort of an inflation calculator for how much prices may rise based on how many months the supply recovery takes? You know, I, I think right now uh, the question on inflation <clears throat> is really uh, bigger than the one you ask, and it is, are we seeing inflation right now that's simply because of these short-run uh, dislocations, or is this inflation we're seeing an emergence of the higher rates of inflation that we saw back in the 70s, for example? And um, this is being debated by economists, and I think increasingly there are economists who think that we should be worried that we are setting off uh, a more permanent uh, a wave of inflation. Uh, as viewers perhaps know, the uh, in inflation adjustment for Social Security for this year is going to be 5.9%. So the measure of inflation used by Social Security was 5.9% for the most recent calendar year. And the reason why we probably should be worried about whether we're setting off a serious uh, bout of inflation is Remember that during the pandemic, 10% um, of our economy was unemployed. So 10, a little more actually, percent of our workers were not working. So they weren't producing things. And yet the government was able to supply <clears throat> unemployment insurance, uh, stimulus checks, et cetera, that maintained income. So the demand for goods and services stayed as high as it was before the pandemic. And that situation of are we now having more income chasing fewer goods and driving up prices, I think is one uh, that's a real possibility. And that the, the, the change, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the short-term inflation that we're seeing, yes, it re we can point to specific disruptions for some goods to explain it, but perhaps there's something deeper going on uh, that our macroeconomic uh, managers in, in Washington will need to worry about. Uh, talk about how general inflation could still create heartburn even after the supply lines recover, and there is, once again, plenty of available goods. Darren had mentioned in an earlier interview, inflationary expectation. No, and ab absolutely. Um, if we look back to the, the period when we had inflation in excess of 10% and unemployment, unfortunately, also in excess of 10%, uh, this was back in the 70s, uh, absolutely it was the question of expectations. That is, people expected inflation. It became part of what we were doing, and it was very painful to break that cycle uh, in a recession that occurred in the early 1980s. Um, and so, yes, if people get used to the idea that, A, their wages are going to go up and, B, the, the things they pay for are going to go up, that gets built in. That inflation becomes a problem for the economy because everybody has a harder time planning when they're not sure whether their product is the one that's going to see higher than average inflation or not. 
So I think it's, while it's, it's probably too early to say we're definitely headed for where we were in the 1970s, I think we should be asking whether or not the very large uh, macroeconomic stimulus associated with the pandemic, um, if, if that is setting in motion uh, fundamental economic forces that will have you know, uh, impacts for several years. All right. Thank you for that. We are going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about supply line concerns and what the winter outlook is as Talk of Alaska continues. Today's program is underwritten in part by ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. ConocoPhillips, unlocking Alaska's energy resources. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. Darren, I wanted to see if you wanted to follow up there on that um, comments about inflation. But also, uh, then we'll move on to some ideas about the holidays. Is there anything that you wanted to add there about inflation concerns, inflation causing inflation? No, yes, absolutely. It brings out the economist in me. Let me let me build on some of the things that Ralph was saying. Um, I, I do believe that there is, at least right now, a firewall between the inflation that's going on due to the supply chain disruptions and then the general um, 70s style um, price expectations fuels um, inflation that we had, the general inflation versus uh, sectoral. But um, what really needs to be understood is uh, if people understand what's going on behind the supply chain, they might, with that information, understand that this is, you, they should not uh, have a general expectation that all prices are going to rise X percent every year. But the sobering news is I was checking some of the uh, markets uh, uh, to prepare, and um, right now we, we do have basically high demand in the transportation sector just chasing low supply, so the prices are up. What we call the spot rate to move a 40-foot uh, shipping container from Shanghai to Los Angeles right now is on average about $11,000 for that one shipment. And that's an increase of 175% year over year. Yeah. Now, on the, yes, that's a lot. Now, on the East Coast, it's cheaper, but it's still inflationary. To go from the port of Rotterdam to the port of New York, it costs not $11,000, but $6,200. But that's still up 150% year over year. So it is very expensive right now to deal with the demand and supply mismatch and dealing with the congestion at these ports. And for moving inland, I was checking the truckload spot rates. They're up about 12%. Now, 12% is a lot less than 100-plus percent, but that's still a lot year over year. And that number is only for what we call general basic drive van shipments. These percentages, these inflationary increases in trucking are much higher when it comes to specialty carriers like bulk and oil, etc. Hmm. So we have to expect that uh, transportation costs are going to be higher and higher getting into the Christmas season. Uh, they're going to be adding fuel surcharges. There's going to be more traffic and delays, etc. And as we go through trying to clear out the um, 
uh, congestion at the major ports in Long Beach, it's just going to be uh, more sectoral inflation for the months to come. We just hope that people do not build this in as standard operating procedures when it's time to negotiate for wages, when uh, suppliers decide to pass these uh, higher prices on to the consumers, that we hope that people consider this potentially waning as opposed to a new normal. If they think of it as the new normal, we are going to be uh, feeding into inflationary expectations. Well, that's a little grim. Uh, <laughs> thank you, though, for the laying that. There's no science economics. Right? Uh, Alyssa, I want to turn to you. Uh, the holidays are close. Many people started shopping online or did a lot more shopping online during the pandemic, may have uh, transitioned to that for the first time. Um, how concerned are small businesses about this continuing trend that people will still shop from their couch rather than driving downtown? Or is this good for small businesses? Yeah. So I, um, it's definitely been noticed Uh, and, uh, and small businesses, small manufacturers are absolutely adjusting. Uh, So that's something that we've been doing here at the Alaska MEP Um, by Alaska through uh, the local SBDC has also been working on this. And so we're really trying to get uh, small businesses and, and from my perspective, small manufacturers who are producing you know, consumer goods uh, online. They need to be online. They need to engage in e-commerce, find those customers and make it just as easy to purchase from them uh, as it is to go on Amazon. And so that's really what we're encouraging our small manufacturers to do and, and what we're seeing them do. They're, they're absolutely responding. Uh, and we're really encouraging that of the consumers, and that's part of um, part of the Buy Alaska program that, that that the Alaska MEP is part of, is really pushing that message that um, even if you're buying online, there are plenty of options to buy local. Um, so you can you know you can continue to decrease your risk uh, of contracting COVID by by staying home, purchasing online, but still buying local. Um, that's that's incredibly important to our economy, to our manufacturers. Um, to, to maintain that connection with our local consumers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a, a more positive note for the future. People bought up lots of toilet paper and other things. I have my canned veggies. Is there much known about how much personal inventory people have on hand and how that may affect supplies or ordering in the future? It seems like that's going to be tough for, for businesses to kind of ferret out that information. We don't conduct those kinds of surveys of uh, households, so we don't. Yeah, tough to know. Do we gather data on it? Um, we don't. I think, however, we can we can probably say the following about the shortages that uh, we're seeing right now, and that is that uh, obviously, in terms of why are we feeling, why did these cascading effects become? so severe at this time. Well, after all, this is the time of the year when Americans buy lots of things. Mm -hmm. And so if there's going to be pressures built up, it's going to be now. Uh, We can expect that things are going to arrive a little late because of those delays. Uh, As those things arrive in January and February, um, we will see inventories, of course, building up because they're arriving late. I think we're likely to see... um, uh, adjustments both by the consumers but also by uh, retailers and wholesalers into the early part of next year as the things that they were hoping to have for Christmas uh, get built up. I will say I come back to 
until we are by the pandemic, I think, uh, by the pandemic in the sense that we're perhaps where we were last June. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to return to something where we can easily say, well, in two or three months, everything will be okay. But if we continue on the path of the pandemic declining because of the shots and so forth, uh, and we get by the Christmas uh, period, I think we'll see inventories both by the consumer and also by retailers and wholesalers decline as they realize, oh, I don't need to hold these large inventories. I can go to the store and get what I need. All right, thank you. We only have a couple of minutes left. There's a couple of questions I'd like to get to here. Darren, Toyo stoves are in short supply. They're very popular in rural Alaska especially. What are some of the greatest problem areas? Is it in regular things that people usually buy, specialized items uh, like a Toyo stove, or is it in the raw materials that go into putting those together? Well, there's a supply chain behind every product that's manufactured, and uh, there's just no way of knowing unless you dig really, really deep into it. Again, that's the invisible nature of um, supply chains. We don't understand all the little connective tissue that goes into that. Uh, Just somewhat related to that, um, I'm sure your um, listeners are aware that uh, the uh, Port of LA and Long Beach uh, pledged I'll use the word pledge to operate 24-7 as the Biden administration asked them to do. Mm-hmm. And many of the big retailers, Walmart and Home Depot, and the carriers, uh, at least offer, on their ground services, UPS and FedEx, also made that pledge to operate uh, during the evening. They um, pledged to move – this is this is, sounds like a big number. They, they pledged to move an extra 3,500 containers off of the docks per week at L.A. and Long Beach. That sounds like a lot, but when you crunch the numbers and when you know what the throughput is, that's only a 3% increase in total throughput at those two ports. And it is not going to make a big deal of difference unless other small uh, retailers also continue to um, uh, operate um, uh, 24-7. Will they? If their warehouses are full, they're not going to be able to do that. Mm. So um, to make it – to pledge this is one thing to make it happen is another and that's why you're going to see all kinds of ripple effects they're going to make their way up to alaska uh with the things that we want to buy as consumers so we we've seen reporting i want to get back to the labor question for just a minute here we've seen reporting on what's been called the great resignation how much of the labor shortage can be attributed to that and how much is it from older workers who are taking early retirement. A federal economist said 3 million excess retirements have happened. Fewer plan on working longer as more of these older workers retire. Staffing shortages can can continue. Uh, Richard Johnson, director of the Urban Institute's Program on Retirement Policy, says a growing labor force sparks economic growth and productivity gains. If the labor force stagnates, the economy stagnates. So, uh, Darren and Ralph, do you want to jump in here and talk a little bit about what what are you seeing as far as what's happening with labor? No, Ralph should go first. Um, It's very clear that the labor market is undergoing major changes and and a very striking thing happened during the pandemic, uh, which was overlooked. That is, the age group from 18 to 64 in the United States declined. Not, not the number of workers, the entire age group, 18 to 64, declined by a very small amount, 10 to 1%. But still, for a country that's used to population growth and economic growth built on population growth, during the pandemic, 
we reached a crucial turning point. <clears throat> Obviously, that was exacerbated by the fact that the labor force participation dropped dramatically. It dropped by over two percentage points, which is a huge drop during the pandemic. And as you said, one of the biggest drivers of that was something that occurs in every recession. Remember, the pandemic set off a very serious recession. That in a recession, older workers who are laid off from their jobs tend to leave the workforce. And that is exactly what happened. And of course, when they leave the workforce, once you've made that decision to retire, um, many of them won't reverse it, even if a job comes along. So that we had kind of the pandemic came at a time when we were al already seeing a change. The other thing that we have to remember is 170,000 Americans under age 65 died because of the pandemic. So there was a reduction in the population uh, in part because of the pandemic. And the other thing was that immigration was cut in half last year, in part because of some ongoing policies, but also because of restrictions on the movements of people uh, into the country. So a number of things are contributing to a big decline in labor force participation and a small decline in the workforce. And yes, I think we're going to continue to deal with that. There is some question in my mind about whether uh, the great reassessment that we're seeing is something permanent. Um, an analogy that's been made was at the time of 9-11, uh, there were a lot of workers who changed what they did because of the uh, dramatic change that 9-11 brought on for our society. Yet in the longer run, it seems like it didn't really have a big impact. It seemed like there was some changes occurring in the short run, and then people sort of drifted back. In this case, I think there are fundamental changes in the population going on that, that will continue to cause wages to go up and therefore put pressure on prices. But I'm less convinced that we've got a great reassessment where uh, people are, except for the elderly who made this one-time adjustment, mm -hmm. uh, that, that there's a dramatic difference in what people will be doing in the workforce. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We did have a final email <clears throat> note here from someone. I'm trying to get back to it saying the one thing I'd like to complain about is the anger of some customers who refuse to accept any of this as a frontline employee. It's demoralizing to deal with people who expect everything to be available for them as they had become accustomed to. I wish they would just be patient and kind as we are doing our very best. Thanks to my guests. Darren Prokop, Professor of Logistics at UAA, Alyssa Rodriguez, State Director of the Alaska Manufacturing Extension Partnership, and Ralph Townsend, Professor of Economics at ICER. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, and our producer, Adlin Baxter, on the phones today, Kavitha George. Next week, we'll be talking about the concern over learning loss with kids back in school. I'm Lori Townsend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.